Today, would you stand with me as we enter into our reading? Our, our text today is 2 Samuel 9, but our reading today is actually in 2 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 4. Wouldn't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Meshibapheth. Ah, you noticed. We're going to pray in just a second. But I want to tell you that this is like one of the most important stories I believe in the text. Everybody would understand this. Every child would be learning about this in Sunday school. But his name is so unmarketable. So impossible to say. It's a story of grace. And my hope today is that you would give me a little grace as I say uh, a name with like 11 verses in it. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for who you are, for your son, for his work, for bringing grace upon us. I also pray today that that work would continue in our heart, that would continue in the ministering of your word. I pray, Lord, as the pastor said this morning, that I would decrease and that You would increase. I pray, Lord, that You would prepare us to see a new side or maybe meditate on a new understanding of who You are. We thank You, Lord, again for the work You have done in the hearts and minds of the leaders of this country. And we pray that the work would continue. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Today's sermon is called The Son of Jonathan and the Son of David. It's a story of Mephibosheth and the grace given to us as he takes a seat at the table. As I said in the intro, I think this is one of the most important stories of grace in the entire Old Testament. His name weren't so difficult to say, you probably would know much more about it. I'm excited to share it with you, but we're in an era of our Scripture that isn't commonly known, and it deserves a little bit of background and context. David's rising to prominence. He was a shepherd boy with a sling on his hand, and the Lord has been weaving this young kid, the son of Jesse, into a place of authority as an anointed king. Because of the story we do all know of David and Goliath, his relationship with the king, whose name was Saul, um, starts to grow. They become intimate and close. But as that relationship grows, Saul's frustration towards David begins to grow as well. His jealousy and his madness, all by the Lord's sovereignty, start to flourish. And meanwhile, Saul's son Jonathan and David become tight friends. So much so that the scripture says that Jonathan says, uh, the scripture says of Jonathan that he loved David as he loved his own soul. As their relationship grows closer, Saul begins to move from jealousy in the quiet of his mind to hatred in the depths of his heart. He starts to try to pursue Saul and kill him. 
As we see the timeline go on, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, you can say it with me, Mephibosheth. Ah, very good. As the vials of war start to grow and this tension of God's anointed King David and and Saul start to mount, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, the young boy, is dropped by his maidservant. He breaks both his legs and he is laid lame. Years later, David has now taken the throne. His kingdom is getting established. His governmental order is starting to take shape. You might say it like this. His political approval is really high. Fifteen or so years have passed. And that's when we come to the story of Meshibbeth. Grace. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1 says this, And David said, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a sermon in the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said, Are you Ziba? And he said, I'm your servant. And the king said, Is there still someone in the house of Saul that I may show kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. Meshibbeth is Meshibbeth. Jesus, I've been saying it all day. Is of royal blood. Jonathan is the heir to the throne, and Meshibbeth is soon to follow. He is a king. He played as a child in the courts of Saul. He had provision and everything that you might need. And David. Years later, is saying, for Jonathan's sake, is there somebody of this royal line that we can bless? And the reason he's making this statement comes out of 1 Samuel uh, chapter 20 and verse 13 through 16. You can, it's up on the slide there if you'd like to read it, but I'll just read it for you as well. It says this. And Jonathan said to David, verse 12. The Lord of God is Israel is a witness. When I have sounded to my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? Jonathan is becoming a spy for David against his own father. In other words, you might say it like this. Jonathan is siding with God's team. But as a result, he makes this covenant. We can go to the next slide here. He makes this covenant with David in verse 15. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. They make a promise in that moment. Jonathan is putting himself at great risk under his father's kingdom. But he says, you must protect me. Show me loving kindness when you become king and show it to my household forever. Some 15 or 20 years later, David is now king, and the entire line of Saul has been wiped out. This is a natural product of the sign of war. If an overthrow in a kingdom took place, you would eliminate everybody of the old kingdom because they were a threat to the new throne. This was customary, strategic, and accepted. David is in his court, and he's remembering a covenant. And he asks the question. In verse 3, he says, is there one? 
because everybody's been wiped out. Saul and Jonathan are also dead. The sons of Saul, the sons of Jonathan, of which in times David tried to stop and prevent under this covenantal promise. And he still wants to play out his loving kindness. And then in verse 3, chapter, or verse 3b, it says this, and he, Jonathan, he is crippled. Jonathan said, pardon me, Ziba said of the son of Jonathan, he is crippled in his feet. And David, the king, in verse 4, says to him, where is he? And Ziba said, the king, uh, he is in the house of Makar, the son of Amamel, in Lodabar. Everybody say Lodabar. The king David sent and brought him from the house of Makar, the son of Amamel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face. This young boy is crippled. We read about that in the text. The implications in that time of being crippled were extraordinary. He couldn't be king. He couldn't go to war. He couldn't lead. He couldn't present himself in a noble way. This is a person who isn't going to have a handicap spot in the front of the room. This is a time in our culture when to be crippled might as well have been to be dead. He's needing care all the time. And he lived in a place called Lodabar. This is far away from Jerusalem. Historians would say that he moved there during this uh, tumult or this tumultuous time uh, in Jerusalem, especially having the lineage and bloodline that he did. He was moved away to safety because he could not run himself. He's in the house of a wealthy man, we believe, because this man needs a caretaker all the time. Someone to help someone who cannot help themselves. And in verses 5-8, through eight, we see the climax of the story. David sends for Mephibosheth to come to the court. Imagine what this man must have thought. He's an enemy of the state. And the new king is sending for him. The Scripture says he brought himself down on his face because he thinks David is going to kill him. And this would have been accepted in society. He says a little later on in verse 8, Why would you treat me with kindness, a dog, a dead dog, such as I? Dogs were reviled in that time. They were a nuisance. They were diseased. They stole your food. They attacked your children. And to see a dead dog on the side of the road would bring a smile to many of the citizens of that time. He is saying, I am your enemy, your nuisance. I've attacked your family. I brought disease upon your kingdom. Why are you being so kind to something as reviled as I am? We know that David is showing kindness to the man, to Mephibosheth, not because of anything he can do. He has no potential, no political help. He's doing it because of a promise he made to his father. And in verses 9 through 13, we read this. And the king called Ziba the servant and said to him, All that belongs to Saul and to his household I give to my master's grandson, that you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson shall have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba, the servant, had 15 sons and 20 servants. 
Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. Micah, And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table in the last line in verse 13. Now he was lame in both of his feet. The king brings an enemy of the state into his court and gives him back his father's house and land, prominence. He gives him servants, people to help take care of him and to take care of his household and a place of prominence at the king's table. A lot of cultural reference. A lot of things going on. And the question must begin, it's up here on the slide, what is this story about? Is it just a historical background so that we can get on to Jesus? The message of the story is about kindness. We can go ahead and go to the next slide here. The word kindness is repeated in every portion of the verses that we just talked about. Is there anyone left? Verse 1, that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake. In verse 2, or pardon me, verse 3, that I may show kindness, this kindness of God to him. And in verse 7, he says to him, do not fear, I will show you kindness. Even in 1 Samuel, when they're making the pact, And do not, this is what Jonathan says to David, cut off your steadfast love, same word, from my house forever. That's the word in uh, Hebrew pronounced chesed, or as we would say in America, hesed. It's a hard word to translate into the English language. That's why in your Bibles it says so many things. In the Old Testament alone, it's called kindness, loving kindness, steadfast love, love, mercy, great gentleness, and loyal love. It's a very important word to understand in the Scripture because it's an important word that God uses to define Himself. The question being asked, what is God like? Is the question that the Bible answers. And in Exodus 34, if you might turn there quickly, we read in this great passage, in chapter 34, chapter 6, this is Moses and the Lord, the, uh, the Lord passing before, um, before Moses. In verse 6 it says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a merciful God and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's the same word. God says, this is who I am. This is what I'm like. And in the English language, we try to define it. We see a parallel word in the New Testament. Paul uses this word multiple times, and in Ephesians, and most prominently throughout his um, letters, he calls it mercy or grace. The best definition for this word, which is really the crux, we have to understand this. I'm not here to just give you a vocabulary lesson. This is an aspect of who God is. This is a definition I want to read to you. The chesed love of God assumes that the pre-existing relationship, and it refers to actions that demonstrate loyalty to that relationship, to preserve, to protect, and to make it flourish. It does not refer to one specific type of action, Rather, it describes a posture in the relationship that can be expressed 
through many different acts. In short, it's an act of loyal love that we might call grace. Loyal love, I think, is an accurate word. Just if we think the relationship of, we think about the relationship between Jonathan and David. David could have obeyed the covenantal relationship to the letter of the law by letting Mephibosheth not die. But because he loves Jonathan, maybe you could see it like this, he sees Jonathan's features in Mephibosheth's face. He puts the love that he has for Jonathan onto the love of his son in a covenantal relationship. And he does this in practical action. This is what this story is about. It's about grace. And grace, of course, is what God gives to us. Namely and chiefly, in the form of giving His Son as a substitution for us. A payment we did not deserve. We hear this word a lot in the church. We throw it around. We have grace in our songs. We say grace to each other. We say grace at the table. You know, we, It's a word that we use all the time. And yet any great biblical scholar would tell you that grace is a very complicated and difficult thing to understand fully. Because it's a characteristic of an infinite God. One of the things I love about the Bible is that it is one unified story declaring one message about who God is and what He is like. Maybe you could think about it like this. It's one diamond. And when you stare at that diamond from one side and when you meditate on the Scripture and you begin to grow and to learn, you see its beauty. It begins to uh, encourage you and help you. And yet the moment you move that diamond ever so slightly and the light hits it in a new way, it's like a whole new diamond. It's the same diamond with a different complicated aspect. As we meditate upon the Scripture today, we are going to see a new side of grace. It's not new in any way. It's just maybe not as shared or discussed or taught in churches today. The story of Mephibosheth is the diamond is a diamond of good news seen from a different angle. This story reveals to us the many aspects of grace and one of the many aspects of the character and the nature of God. Namely, His Son given to me because of His covenant relationship to another. So here's what I want to do. I want to prove this to you. I want to run through the text again. But this time you're not going to hear about the historical Jewish customs of the time. You're going to hear the Gospel. Beloved, I want you to know this. That the Gospels aren't just in the Gospels. This is the story of grace to you and I. It's not just the acts of kindness by a king, but the gracious giving grace of our God. Let's run through it again. Just run back from the top. We can go over to the next slide. The first slide we see is this picture of creation. In verse 1 it says, the house of Saul. Jonathan grew up in this wonderful house of Saul. This kingdom reign. Running around, if you can imagine, him in the royal court. Having presence and, and a voice to share with his grandfather, the king. 
He had royal care. He had authority. He had fellowship. And then for in the, uh, verse 2, we say, for Jonathan's sake. This is that covenant relationship. God does not forget what He gave to us. What am I trying to say? Do you see this picture here? This is the garden. This is, this is Adam and Eve put into a place of fellowship and proximity and authority. He's rule over the birds of the sea and the fish, or birds of the air, fish of the sea, there we go, and of the land. He gets to name the plants and the animals, and he gets to walk with God in the cool of the day. He has a position. And he's a God, and he's a king who does not forget these promises. He does not forget the garden. In fact, I may submit to you, beloved, that this Bible is a story of how God redeems us back to where it all started, but in a new and better way. David remembers the promise, and so does God. His image bearers will once again rule with him in authority, and he's going to make it so. But then, in 2 Samuel 9, uh, 3b through 4, we can take it to the next slide here, we see the fall. Mephibosheth is a product of war. He's crippled. Maybe you could say it like this. He's cursed in his flesh. We too have disease, have pain in childbirth, and we will all experience death. That we're cast from a garden in a place called Lodabar. You know what the name physically means for Lodabar? It's literally the place of no harvest, the place of nothing. Where the garden grows in and out of every season. We're put aside, cast away from the kingdom, and put in a place where there is nothing. He had, Adam and Eve had presence with God, and when they ate of the apple, and when Adam fell into sin, maybe you could say it like this, he sided with the enemy. Saul did as well. And they see their little kingdom separated from their own hands. Notice too, the Mephibosheth didn't do any of this stuff. He is a product of what his dad and his dad's dad did. Do you know too that we are born into sin as the seed of Adam? The scripture says that when Adam sinned, we in his loins, the seed of Adam, all sinned with him. And that by faith, when we are reconciled to God, when Jesus died on the cross, all died with him. That you are born into sin before you ever do one single thing because of the status of your genealogy. We are of the bloodline of Saul. Maybe you could say the bloodline of sin. There is no one righteous. No, not one. Mephibosheth's position is our position. And this is the climax of the story. This is the place that you and I all come to when we realize we're an enemy of the state and we're called to the court by the king himself. And in a vulnerable exposed position, realizing the authority of our judge who is the king and is God, we are laid low on our face. Do you see his position? This is the redemption of the cripple in the king's presence. 
Mephibosheth's response should be our response. Do you see it? He falls on his face. He doesn't beg for his life. He doesn't say, but I didn't do any of this. This wasn't my fault. I've been a cripple. I've had no choice. I had a bad upbringing. I didn't have enough money. I didn't. He doesn't say any of that. He puts himself before the mercy seat of the king because he knows he's in the wrong. His actions or ability have nothing to do with his position in sin. Shouldn't his response be ours as well? Putting our face to the ground. Because it is right for the Lord to be able to kill us, is it not? It would be mercy, it would be, sorry, it would be justice for him to wipe us out. Isaiah, we don't have time for it. Isaiah 59, 17 is this picture of God putting on armor. He says he puts on a breastplate and he says, I will deliver to those as they have been deserving. I will give to them what they've earned. Mephibosheth deserves death because of his last name. But that's not what he gets. That's the radical story of the gospel. That's what should move us to worship at all times. What we get isn't what we got. David says, do not fear, for I will show chassid. I will show myself. I am a loving, kind king. He is a loving and merciful, steadfast love type of God. In verse 7, we see this picture of Exodus 34 again. This is what God is like. This is the picture of what we're trying to gather. I'd like to read this to you here. The Christian is given grace by God because of our connection with Jesus. Think about this. This is the important aspect. It's kind of the crux of the sermon today. Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has, God has, blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Mephibosheth gets what he gets, not because David is kind to him. He's doing this because he's kind to Jonathan. Let me give you an example here. God is pouring out his love on Christ His approval on Christ, His covenantal promise-keeping nature is loving His good Son. And our connection to His good Son, because of that, we get the same care. We can say in the Christian church, well, grace is something I don't deserve it and, and I didn't earn it. But I got it because God's good to me. No, He's good to His Son. And His Son is good to you. And his, and his son made a promise with you. And that promise is a byproduct. We are getting what we get in the heavenly places because of our connection to Jesus. Mephibosheth gets what he gets because of his relationship to Jonathan. 1 Corinthians 6.17 But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit within him. And Mephibosheth's response in verse 8. He still doesn't get it. You see this here? Let me, let me read it to you. And he paid homage. He's still on his face. And he says, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog as I? This is an important point, ladies and gentlemen. Sorry for you note takers. I don't have like 
three P's or four C's. You're just going to have to pay attention, you know? Mephibosheth's identity is still wrapped up in what he's done, in his past, in his ability, in his Lodabar city. His name literally means the dispeller or distributor of shame. And when you get called that enough and you live in that place long enough and you remember the history enough, you start to believe that is who you are. And it's true. That is who you are. I come from a city called Pueblo. It might as well be Lodabar. <laughs> the Pueblo jokes always work up here. But here's the beauty of moving into a kingdom. When you're a part of a kingdom, the king gets to declare who you are and who you are not in status. Did you know in history, I always love this little fact, that in ancient days, the measure of a king's certain body parts determined the measuring length that that kingdom would use. That's where we get the term foot. The, the, the length of a king's foot was the foot in the kingdom. So when there was an overthrow, like I could be four feet tall and now I'm six feet tall because I got a little king. But it's the king who determines your position, your status. Your, his opinion of you is the opinion. And when you enter into the kingdom of God by the work of His Son Jesus, you are no longer from low to bar. You are no longer the dispeller of shame. You are no longer an enemy of the state. You may have that experience, and that is true. Ladies and gentlemen, we are in one sense sinners. Depraved in every way. But our Scripture says you are saints. Not because of anything you've done or earned, but because the King says so. And when we submit to a King and His authority, we must let His opinion become our opinion. I say this all the time, and I think it would be good for you to write down. Our goal in sanctification is to love what God loves and hate what God hates. To move our opinion, our feeling over to His. That we would confess with Christ what He confesses. That we would be in covenantal relationship, not just in like, hey, I get to go to heaven someday, but I'm in covenant, we align together. And that we must trust that if He and I are different in a viewpoint, or different in our own opinion or identity of each other, or myself, it is me who needs to move, not the King. He declares Mephibosheth a part of the royal family. Ephesians 2.24 says this, You put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We teach and preach and disciple an identity in Christ because that is what we have put on. He's not just going to say so, though. In verses 9 through 13, he's going to make it so. This is another aspect of the diamond of who God is, of his grace, that when we turn, we begin to understand. In our Christian community, we say, You received grace. We understand grace because we know that Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the dead. And if we believe that, we have new and eternal life. That is not the whole story of the gospel, there's more. There is a reconciliation that occurs. Let's move on to the next slide here. We get the loyal love in 
action. He says here that David is going to put kindness, this loving kindness, on Mephibosheth. Notice that when David says, or when Mephibosheth says, why would you do such a, thick, kind, uh, a nice thing to a dead dog such as I? What's David's response? He doesn't even answer. This isn't Mephibosheth's doing. Notice, if you will, think about it for a second. Who came to who? You would say that Mephibosheth entered into the court of the king. But it was the king who went and got him. Mephibosheth argues with him under the presence of his own identity. And the king doesn't even answer. Verse 8. The end of verse 8. Regard for a dead dog such as I. In verse 9, here's his answer. Then the king called Ziba, son of the servant of Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belongs to Saul and to his house I give to your master's grandson. He's not offering it to him as something he can leave or take. Our salvation is given to us by the graceful king himself. We may think we believe we said the prayer or believe we want to come to church or believe we chose baptism, but it is God in His providential reign who plucks us out of Lodabar and brings us into His mighty presence. And we might think that we argue with that because we wrestle with our own control over our life. The story isn't about your control. The story is about the kindness of the King. It's a good thing to be saved. And David brings this loving action by giving Mephibosheth three things declared in 9-13. through This is loyal love. This is how he reconciles Mephibosheth back to his starting place. He gives him wealth. He gives him authority. And he gives him family. Do you see the picture here? It's the garden. Oh man, this is the part that makes me cry every time. This little boy ran around in this king's court as a child. And the actions of his father's father destroyed him. He's been broken by somebody that wasn't himself. He's cast into another place. And it's the king who plucks him out of nowhere and brings an end to his name of shame by putting him back where he was as a little boy. A king in the court with great provision and care. He gets the house of Saul. He gets the Zeba. Zeba's a rich man, a wealthy man. He's got servants and children of his own, people to take care of his land. And he gets to be back in the presence of the king. There's a day that comes in our word and in our true reality. There is a God in heaven, and he's real and he's coming, and he's restoring us back to a banquet table, to a great garden where we can, if you will, Walk with Him in the cool of the day. Back to before it all fell apart. Back before we were products of war. Back before we were dropped in our haste. He's a crippled man finally with a seat at the table. The king's table was an important and prominent place. It was a place where covenant relationship took place. It was, a, it was a place that was guarded. We've heard pictures and seen moments in the story where we have cup bearers. Those who drink of what the king drinks to make sure that there's no poison. It's, an, it's a time where your trusted people are near. Maybe you could say it like this. It's a place for family. 
In Exodus 34, this is who God says He is. In the story of Mephibosheth through King David, this is how He shows off what He's trying to do. In the life and work of Christ, it is right in front of you. But it's the same Gospel. And there will come a time when we too, in our heavenly place, have a seat at the table. Isn't it a great story? We should teach this in Sunday school. Okay, we should just get over the hard name. Call him Mel. I don't care. It's the Gospel. I know we're running out of time here. I, I, I've, got, I've got three things. Get, maybe I am like a note-taker guy. The heart of the story is the grace of God the King towards us. Do you see it? As a quick aside, I don't, this just came to me as I'm getting ministered to this. Notice that Jonathan has to die in order for Mephibosheth to receive all that comes to him. That one had to um, pay the price, as it were. Sorry, that just made me tear up a little bit. There are three things I think that we can take away in a practical way today. The main point of the sermon, what I want you to walk away with, God is a gracious God. That's who He is and that's what He displays. There are three things maybe you could consider in light of this story. As Rich always says, I really love how he says that. In light of this, what ought we to do? Here they are. Yeah. Number one, we are always at the king's table. Number two, we are not the only cripples at the table. And number three, this loyal love, this said love of God. Whoa, that was a good one. He said love of God at your table. Verse 7 says, and you will eat always at my table, he says to Mephibosheth. We have a seat forever. The gospel message is given to us so that we might live in its truth, its reality here on earth. We have to wonder to ourselves, if we become a Christian, why doesn't he just whoop, bring us right up to heaven? Wouldn't it be better that way? There is purpose in God keeping us here that we may live in light with our eyes up for eternity, not wrapped around in the muck and the guck of the world. We have a seat forever at the king's table. There are days when you will look in the mirror and you will see a cripple. You will see a dead dog. You will see a person from Lodabar. And those things may be true in their present moment. But take courage, brothers and sisters, because we, are, we have a place reserved next to the king at his table, at his right hand in Christ. I pray that this is an encouragement to you that though we may look one way or feel one way or live in a Genesis 3 world that's broken in every way, we would remind ourselves, preach the gospel to ourselves, that we have a reservation at the table. Number two, we're not the only cripples at the table. Uh, listen, understanding the full complexity of grace is difficult. Just like understanding God is difficult. But I, I fear that it may be more difficult for us to accept or understand grace in other people. you got to hear me when I say this. Um, reformed brothers and sisters, there will be Arminians at the table. we got to hear this. Because I have this conviction in my own heart. I read the Scripture and I meditate and I, I, I see God in a higher and higher way in my own heart. I'll confess that. I believe that that is true. I, in my study, I'm exalting Him further. But as I get older, 
I would think that the more I would study, the humbler I would become. The more like a Mephibosheth on my face, I would, I would live out. But I don't. I revile and I mock and I gossip. And we, we look at other people who walk in this room or walk into our house or walk into our neighborhood and they got cars in the front lawn or they don't wear the right clothes or they don't wear the right, say the right things or they don't have the certain political view and we look at them like cripples from low to bar. They have a seat at the table. And my prayer is that we would be gracious to one another. This is as much for me as it is anybody else. That we're not the only cripple there. That the only difference between the greatest sinner you can imagine and yourself is the grace of the King. This isn't a message about how to be more accepting. I want to remain the sanctity of the Scripture. I want to hold it high. I desire holiness. But not at the expense of grace. Because if that were the standard for myself, there would be no seat for me. Paul says that there is nothing that we have that has not been given. So who can boast? And who is perfect? Number three, find a way to pour out loyal love at your own table. 2 Peter 2.9, this is one of my favorite verses. It says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. And then this is it. That you may, you might want to underline that, 2 Peter 2.9, that you may proclaim the excellence of Him who called you out of darkness into His merciful light. I've been plucked out of Lodabar. I've been given back to this garden position in my eyes for eternity now but not yet. So that I may proclaim the excellence of God. How, do I, how better to proclaim the excellence of God than the way He does it? The Hasid love. This loyal love. A covenantal action. I'm kind to you, not because of anything that you can give to me, but because you're an image bearer of God, and because God is good to me, and my love of God, I'm going to pour out the love of God that I have for Him onto you. And I'm going to do it in great sacrifice. Remember, Christ was King. He was fully God, but He was fully man. His expense on the cross was dearly expensive. It was a great sacrifice. And here's a challenge. Have we put ourselves in a position where we too may sacrifice for love? This is a a story about adoption. It says, and he sat at the king table as one of David's sons. We too are adopted, are we not? We're brought in. Now this is just one example. There's a million ways to display this love out. You can adopt a family. You can, you know, you can do a lot of things. But let's just narrow for a moment onto adoption itself and the picture of the gospel in the world. That the light of God is displayed by those who are salt and light. And that may we find ways and room in our own hearts and our own homes to find a place at the table for somebody else who can give you nothing. That you may display in some way the love of God that was given to you onto somebody else. 
What a great picture it is. We just had a great win in the, in the Supreme Court. We have many more steps to do, but if you will, it has become harder to an abort an un, a, a baby, a child, an image bearer of God. And sin is still rampant. In other words, there are people all over the world. Listen, there are kids in this very city who have no place at any table. My, my wife and I, when we got married, we said that we would um, try to build our relationship and our marriage on a few things. I don't know if it's like biblical or not. This is what we did. And one of the things that we prayed to the Lord is that our life would be used by Him. Our marriage would be used by Him too. And this is the phrase we've been praying for 10 years. That you would, that you would give us, Lord, the ones that nobody else wants. Not because I'm a good parent. I'm like a C-minus human. There are better parents out there than me, that's for sure. The reason I want to do this is because I was the one that nobody else wanted. I was the sinner, the enemy of the state. And in His loving kindness, He grabbed me and gave me a seat at the table. And so one of the first things you do, if you guys know us, you know we're involved in adoption and foster care, and it's a big part of our life. One of the first things and one of the best things warming to my heart, when we bring in a new kid, you get a call, and literally, like three hours later, you have this human you got to deal with. We don't know what to do. We don't know what to, like, how to shape or what they want to do. We just sit down at the table. We have Domino's pizza or mac and cheese or something. And it's at that table that I learn more and more about the love of God. In our life groups, one of the calls of the life groups that many of you are, I hope that you are in, one of the calls of the life group is to be on mission. The word mission isn't like mission impossible. Let's go take the hill. The mission is to share the love of God, the nature of God. Who is God? You know Him. Go show Him to the world in real and practical ways. Maybe you could say it like this. We'll, we'll get ready to close here. Can we go to the next slide? I'll close with this story. Sorry, I've been going on and on. Uh, my, my stepmom is a special ed teacher. And in Lodabar, <clears throat> I mean in Pueblo, uh, there's a lot of poverty. And so a lot of those folks who have special needs children can't care for them without the public school system because they got to go to work all day. And so in my childhood and for years, we would just have a lot of these kids stay with us. And one of them who was not just a student of my mom's, but a family friend and deep roots and relationships to our family, his name was Wes and he's in a wheelchair. He had a list a mile long of issues. He couldn't communicate well. He couldn't use his left hand and big shunt. He had a lot of problems, and it was complicated to get him to picnics and get him to the park and make him a part of our family. Though we tried, we had lots of stairs, and we had to bathe him and change his diaper and do all of this stuff. And I'll never forget a, 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 a quote he gave me without knowing that he did. He's sitting at my grandma's table, and we're all around the table, and he says, I love the table because at the table we're all the same. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word, for Your grace, for Your kindness towards us. I ask today 
that you would declare and show us, maybe reveal to us in our own heart, a way that we could display the love of God to another in our community. Maybe adoption, maybe something completely different. If they have no room in their house or room at their table, would you find room in their heart to in some way be like the kind king that you were to us? We thank you for your son, the greatest gift of all, the greatest act of grace and loving kindness there has ever been or there ever will be. We thank you for his authority and reign. And we thank you that you bring things back to the way you intended them to be. In Jesus' name, amen.